Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome back to another riveting episode of Coaching Inside the Box, episode 54. Um, welcome to what is sure to be a unique and creative spin on Coaching Inside the Box, because it's not just Andy, Philippe, and I. In fact, I've got my fingers crossed because we have a guest today. I'm hopeful that Andy doesn't have any bad jokes to lead us off as per usual. With that said... Hold on, hold on. I, I have a complaint. Okay. You know, and, and did you did you it's, it's did an you observation for my, uh, you know, for everybody out there that's been listening to our podcast. You know, is you don't know what it's like, you know, being involved with Philippe. You know, Philippe is a fanatic about the game and a fanatic about the Brazilian game, obviously. You know, and what you mean he so, sends us texts at one a.m. with, I'm, with I'm three a.m. <laughs> you know, so you know, my phone goes off at three a.m. That's when you wake up, and and, and it's also yet, when he goes to sleep sometimes. But but you know, it's a clip of of Ronaldinho juggling the ball with his earlobe. You know, it's. <laughs> It's well, last night it was Rivaldo, and it was a fantastic clip. It was a fantastic clip, but but you know, three a.m. Give me a break. You know, this is ridiculous. I know? have proof. I'll, I'll share the screenshot after. It was not even midnight. <laughs> well, so you now know Andy and Philippe are with us because uh, they've both uh, reared their ugly heads early on before even being called on. If we're being honest, um, but we also have an excellent guest, um, one of Kansas City's current own, um, uh, uh, is Jeff Van Dusen, the Chief Executive Officer of United Soccer Coaches. Jeff has been a friend for a long time. Uh, uh, his son um, is, I think, three kids. Um, one of his uh, children played uh, for Legends for a long time. Um, good friend of Andy. Andy and, and Jeff spent quite a bit of sideline high school soccer parent time together, which I'm eager to unpeel that onion, and I can't imagine what those conversations are like. Uh, but Jeff, welcome to Coaching Inside the Box. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, and I'm proof that Andy does have friends. <laughs> <laughs> I was doubting it, to be honest. <laughs> well, to, to be well, fair, when Andy suggested, I've got a friend that's going to come on, Philippe was like, you've got friends? <laughs> I didn't say friend. I said, I know someone that's willing to come on. <laughs> Uh, well, Jeff, welcome. You know, for those listening, um, I don't even know how much Jeff knows about our listenership. So we've got listeners all across the United States, but then in several different countries as well. Um, but those of you listening that that are aware, United so or that aren't aware, um, Jeff, could you give us just like a brief intro into what United Soccer Coaches is and the role that it um, uh, it plays in, in in not just the American soccer landscape, but the the soccer coaching landscape worldwide. Absolutely. Uh, we're a nonprofit organization that services coaches of all levels, youth, high school, collegiate, even some professional. Uh, we're the largest coaches association in the world, and um, we do things such as coaching education. Uh, we celebrate coaches with uh, awards such as the rankings for college and high school, uh, the All-Americas, and uh, Scholar All-Americas and coaches of the year and staff of the year. And then we advocate for the game. Uh, we have nine coaching communities that focus on not only who you coach, but who you are as a coach, uh, providing resources for those coaches. And um, we've got a staff of about 25 right here in Kansas City. 
and uh, we put on events such as coaching education and the largest coaches, uh, a, a largest gathering of soccer coaches in the world every January. Yeah. Um, and before we go into that, because I, I do want to know more about that, um, I'm curious, how big is the footprint? We're uh, right about 15,000, 16,000 members yeah. right now. And, and a history going back to 1941. Andy, you remember probably 1941 well. What was it like right before World War II? It, it was kind of tough. You know, my house in the east end of London was bombed out. You know, we spent a lot of time in the underground, you know, in the railway system, hiding from the Nazi bombs. And, you know, you are a cheeky swine. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where box soccer was invented, right? was, Yeah, it was. In it was the subway. Tur- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense. It, it's all we the had favelas of Brazil. All those, all those hours dodging Nazi bombs. <laughs> Listen, I'm only 65. Uh, the best know? part is when you don't bring prepared jokes, then some real good natural jokes can develop. You think that was a good natural joke? You know, oh, it was, was fantastic. fantastic. That was at the cost of my self-esteem. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You, you could drop quite a bit of notches of self-esteem and be still ahead of all of us. So I we're good. Say. We're good. I, I wanted to jump in here because Jeff's not going to do this, but um, you know, I, you know, I have a, a USSF national A license, and and I have a, a, a United Soccer Coaches Advanced National Diploma, and the difference between the two organizations was stark. Was was massive. There was a Grand Canyon between the two organizations. You know, I, I went and did my A license and everything was prim. It was proper. It was highly organized and very much regimented, very much about pattern plays, you know, and, you know, the, the coaches were hardly allowed to talk to the staff. You know, it, it was... Um, you know, it felt like Colditz, you know, the German prison camp, you know, um, you know on, on drugs, to be honest, back in those days. And, and then uh, I took my uh, um, NSCAA, it was in those days, United Soccer Coaches Advanced National License. And uh, I had a, a wonderful man called Lothar Osiander, who was uh, running the course. And he used to be the, uh, the men's national team coach. And, uh, and, and Hanson Dorrance is an old friend uh, that I used to work with on the under-19 national program. And, and uh, you know, these guys had a completely different approach. You know, we, we went out together. We talked to the wee hours of the morning about soccer, enthused about everything. Um, there wasn't a them and us perspective. It was, we're all in this together, and we're going to do this as creatively as possible, and we're going to build something special from a camaraderie perspective as well as a knowledge perspective. And it was a whole different ball game. And, and thanks, not in small part, to Jeff, that ethos has continued to this day and i thank you for that jeff because that was big for me when i was really getting into my licensing process as a younger man back in the uh, early 1700s and <laughs> <laughs> he invented think, the game i, I think we we would give the diplomas on rocks actually. <laughs> yeah. so, well, uh, hey last name's body it's yeah. a flintstone thing yeah, that's right you, you, you go down to andy's office and he's got that diploma up and, uh, on the wall it's really yeah. heavy it's really heavy yeah. uh, to hold it up so. well we were talking before we started recording jeff uh, about about 
kind of the, the 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 focus. I mean, we were comparing it to the, to obviously U.S. soccer and their and their um, badge system and certificate system, but the focus in United Soccer coaches in terms of having an open dialogue where creativity. I think Andy specifically used the term creativity was palpable. Um, is that something that is is inherent within the organization that you run and the membership that you have? Is is a focus on um, an ability to share ideas and, 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 and be creative and, and, and not be too regimented? 100%. Uh, I, I believe that United Soccer Coaches teaches you how to coach, right? And uh, the Federation licenses you to coach. So I use the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles as an example. So when, when you have kids that are age that are trying to learn how to drive, I think United Soccer Coaches is that driving school, right? You send your kid to driving school to learn how to drive. And then when they go to get their license, they have to go to the DMV, the Department of Motor Vehicles, and get the license. That's the federation. So I feel that we create this environment where you're on the field of our diploma courses or any of our courses, and you're having that inter interaction with each other, but also the instructors. And I think that our instructors are some of the best in the, in the world as far as their experiences within the game. And bringing that opportunity to collaborate uh, out in each, in, in each individual coach. Think about the environment that, that everyone coaches in. It's everyone's different. And the environment that you've had um, as a younger coach, as an older coach, a high school coach compared to a, uh, a, a youth coach, every environment is totally different, and we need to learn from each other. We say that uh, the, the, the best coaches steal from each other and, uh, and adapt their environment to uh, the individual team that they're coaching. Sure, sure, sure. And in and, and our experience attending numerous of uh, the January convention that you mentioned a moment ago, the largest gathering of coaches that happens every year in January, you know, we've gone and, and presented and, and, and participated in, in many different sessions throughout the years at, um, at that event. And one thing that is noticeable for me is the, the panel discussions that exist. And within the panel, there'll be some different ideas, um, but the, 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 the willingness to have two people with maybe um, uh, a divergent in thought or, 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 or perspective or theory um, sharing the same stage, um, uh, I think demonstrates that 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 open-ended discussion is where creativity is comes from. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. When I went to the first convention, I was mind blowing, mind blown because it's it's comp we don't have anything like it in Brazil. Like soccer is way more organic, uh, obviously, and we, d we don't have that kind of stuff. And just being able to see all those coaches all together, all those different brands exchanging information and all that, I mean, it was incredible. And like you guys are talking about the field sessions. I was We were working, obviously, in the convention, but I was able to watch a few. And it was interesting because it's not just ran by a certain number of people with a model and it's all about the same topic there are so many different ideas philosophies and you know you can agree disagree but even when you you have your own philosophy and you hear something different completely different that you disagree completely it's important for you to understand the other side so you you know what's going on and you can have a more thorough understanding of the game so 
being able to see all of those different aspects and from different people, different nationalities and, and all that, I think it's it's vastly important. That's how the game is learned. You know, uh, countries copy each other uh, in terms of national team, in terms of development, and they're always trying to steal, steal ideas. Clubs do the same thing. So coaches need the same thing to be able to do the best. Yeah, for sure. So, Jeff, you um, uh, uh, have... You are a coach at heart, right? Your your background is coaching. Your background is not as uh, um, uh, running the largest uh, coaching organization in the world. That's what you do now. But previous to that, you were a coach. Tell us a little bit about your coaching journey. So I actually, um, I well, I grew up in the Chicagoland area, playing, and the, the the culture there was just captivating because it was really about your ethnicity and the club that you were that you joined. So I played with the Maroons Club, which was basically all Italians. It was one Dutch kid and a bunch of Italians. <laughs> and, you know, we'd play Schwaben, which was the German club, or Green and White, or, you know, all these different clubs with ethnicities. And, and that just helped grow the love of, of the game for me and really introduced me to the world game as well. And, you know, the 94 World Cup just absolutely uh, made me fall in love with the, with the sport and said, hey, you need to get into coaching and, and make a difference and help grow this passionate uh, sport in our country. And so uh, I, I went on and played. Uh, some would question whether we were Division One or not, but we we're mid-major Western Illinois. and The and, Leathernecks. Uh, the Leathernecks. Yeah. You got it. And yeah. uh, it, w it was a good time. Uh, I had a I had a fun time playing college soccer, and I actually stayed on to be an, a, a graduate assistant with John McKenzie, who was a legend in the game. And um, I, I received my first coaching job before I even graduated from undergrad, and I still had to do my student teaching. Uh, it was a small school in Davenport, Iowa, called Mary Crest International University, which is no longer a, a university. Uh, it closed its doors. You finished them um, off then, huh? That's right. Yeah, I closed the doors off. <laughs> I was waiting for him to say it's no longer a university, so, it's now a prison. That's right. Uh, <laughs> no, I was the men's and women's coach there for two years, uh, then went to Hastings College and basically started the men's program there. Um, Which is a very good program. I've played against them many times in college. They won national championships yeah, when I was I, my time there. Yeah. I, I think I'm the only coach in the country that left a men's program and a women's program, and the next coach came in and won a national championship. So <laughs> uh, you can decide what that means. So, um, so after Hastings, uh, I was actually an admissions counselor and head men's soccer coach, and I was one of those pioneers that always had to have another job at the school sure. um, at, while coaching. So after that, um, after Hastings College, I went down to Missouri Southern, uh, started the women's program there. Uh, our first year, where we, we were 1-16-1 and, and scored seven goals and gave up 77, and we were thrilled to death. Uh, but uh, anyway, we, 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 we did all right uh, on the men's side, and then the women's side grew the program, and then uh, Central Missouri, University of Central Missouri hired me. I uh, went there for four years, and um, our, our, our third game in our first season, uh, we lost 10 nothing. Okay. And, yeah, that was pretty humbling. And, uh, by the, by, uh, and I had a local player here. She went to Olathe East, 
and played in another club. Uh, but she comes in the next day in my office and she, and she's pissed. And she said, Coach, we just gave up 10 goals in 90 minutes. And I don't think this past year in club or high school, we gave up 10 goals all year. And I said, stay here, build it with me. She was the only senior in her last game was in the NCAA tournament. And Central Missouri has never looked back uh, after that. So that was... Uh, that was fun to build that program and then uh, went on to Indianapolis University of Indianapolis and spent four years there uh, thought that was going to be really where I retired from coaching and that was true uh, until uh, then then the NSCA now United Soccer Coaches came calling um, was involved with the association for 20 some years and uh, my first job at the association was um, a volunteer job at the Men's College Cup in uh, 96 and uh, 95, excuse me, in Richmond. And I was the guy making sure that you had your membership card to get in at halftime to get hot chocolate and brownies during the Men's College <laughs> Important Cup. job, important yeah. job. And yeah. now I'm CEO, so yeah. it's, it's come full circle. So, uh, But uh, my opportunity to volunteer with our organization has um, truly has grown over the years. And, and uh, so coming out of coaching, then into uh, the association, I felt that I could give a bigger impact on the game than just coaching a single team. And that was my motivation. That's my why on why I, I chose to get out of the college game and come to the association because then I ran the convention for 11 years and then became CEO. So, but uh, the convention is is big business. Um, it's uh, opportunity to to continue to grow the game and and as Philippe said, uh, change or give that opportunity for a bunch of coaches to get together and exchange philosophies and network and learn from each other. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Let's let's dig into the soccer side of it. So, Jeff, uh, uh, you have a, you have three kids, right? I was right in that. Correct. Two girls and a boy, right? Correct. Yep. Um, and your boy is your oldest. Correct. And he played for the club. Correct. And um, uh, and then your second oldest. Correct. Played co- or high school soccer with Andy's daughter. Correct. I'm really can curious. I, can I jump in? Sure. Here yeah, yeah. There's a there's a deeper and longer you know backward tie. I shouldn't use the word backward. Um, you know historical tie uh, between um, United Soccer Coaches and our club because um, the previous CEO Jim Sheldon, uh, you know Jim was uh, became a good friend of mine. His son used to play for me, so his son was also a, a Kansas City Legends player. And in rest in peace, Jim. He, you know, Jim was just a like Jeff, very cerebral. Um, you know, not somebody that you know would would you know climb up on the mountain top and shout at the world. But you know, every year, you know, the association would get stronger. You know, the and and I love the way that United Soccer coaches have um, recognized the quality of talent they've got within and generated that talent and promoted that talent and educated that talent, but also rewarded that talent from within. It's a very loyal organization and, um, you know, run by coaches for coaches. And Jim Sheldon was an absolutely wonderful man who did a fantastic job of providing the base, you know, that we've all benefited from. You know, so I'd like to just say that, you know, and, and, and I feel that Jeff is, is continuing in that vein, you know, and, and doing a wonderful job 
um, you know, and 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 a, a quiet, solid, firm hand, you know, that leads soccer in this nation in the direction it needs to go, you know, but not from an egotistical perspective at all, and that's incredibly important. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so the question that I was going to ask is, I'm really curious what those soccer high school soccer dad chats were like on the sideline <laughs> between the two of you. Well. <laughs> And every time his daughter touched the ball, he he Andy had his had his phone out taking videos. He's an amateur videographer. It was it was great though, but obviously his daughter was dynamic on the field and and uh, grew up as a legend player and and absolutely changed the game and so uh, the high school game yeah. and and helped build a young program because our daughters were the first ones that to, to suit up with within this brand new high school and started to build that culture within within the high school at Olathe West um, and they they've become they've become pretty good over the years and and you know this is going to you know uh, be a tip for everybody listening to this show i discovered you know, more by chance than anything else, um, the value of taking video of, of a kid when they're playing um, alongside Jeff. Because, you know, I, I, I got to the point where if, if for any reason Jeff was committed elsewhere and couldn't make a high school game, you know, um, I was really disappointed that we didn't have the chance to stand together and, and just bounce ideas off of each other and just chat and enjoy each other's company. Um, and and uh, what I learned in high school was the value of taking video clips of your kit because I'd never been able to do it because I was always coaching Holly in everything else she'd ever done. I'd been her coach. And all of a sudden, you know, I've got 90 minutes where I'm able just to, you know, you know get my phone out. You know, technology advanced to such a degree that I was able to camera Holly and get, you know, good live videos of her taking people on and scoring goals and and uh, you know, doing some pretty uh, to pretty pretty different things. You know, in terms of taking responsibility to to uh, try and carve out a goal scoring opportunity for herself or for others on the team. And uh, and so um, here's what happened. She the first time I did it, got back into the car after you know the you know the mandatory you know coach chat after the game and so she comes you know into the car and I said I've got something to show you that I've never done before and she said what is it I said well you know I took videos of you so th here's the phone here's what I took you know take a look and you know she was absolutely enthralled with you know the 10 minutes of highlights broken up into five second pieces, 10 second pieces. She was absolutely enthralled. And here's what she did, you know, bad highlight, trashed it, just dumped it, you know, you know. And so at the end of this, you know, this time when she'd, you know, reviewed all these, these highlights, she was left with 10 really good highlights of the game, you know, where she'd done something really productive, you know, and she watched those highlights and she watched those highlights and she was mesmerized by how she looked in a video highlight, you know, and, and then, you know, the next time I did it, she got in the car and dad phone, <laughs> you know, and from that point onwards, it was, you know, get in the car, dad phone, you know, and, and she got more and more addicted to these highlights. But here's the kicker. She tried more things 
because for the first time ever, game to game, she was seeing the impact she had. So from first game to 10th game of the season, you know, she went from being tentative because she was a freshman, you know, to really going for it much in the same way that she did in club, but maybe even to a different level, even though she was younger than, you know, a lot of the players she was playing against because, you know, she was a freshman playing against, you know, juniors and seniors, you know, she, you know, lost her inhibitions very quickly, you know, because she wanted to make highlights. Mm-hmm. And that changed the game for my kid. You know, the first couple of years she was in high school, she took off, she, she caught fire because for the first time ever, I was actually memorializing the drag Maradona turn that she loved to use and its impact on defenders. She saw defenders falling down when she did the turn, you know, and in fact, I've got a clip of with you in the background as kind of the, um, the soundtrack. Um, the, the girls were playing at Gardner, you know, Gardner Edgerton High School. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two, two players... Um, you know, uh, came from either side and like double teamed her and like sandwiched her, you know, and tried to bring her down. And she fought both of them off and they both fell over. And she went on to take on the next defender. And, you know, she um, ran into the next defender and knocked the next defender down. And one of the girls that had fallen over had gotten back up, chased her down and hacked her down, you know. And it was, it was a violent clip and the referee didn't call a darn thing, you know. And he should have been pulling out, you know, maybe possibly even a red card, you know, for, for one. Of, I'm not saying against two, but for one of the plays, probably against Holly for what she did to the last defender, to be honest. You know, and, and uh, you know, and... And Jeff in the background said, you know, um, an American thing. You know, he, he went, oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, I'll have to show the clip later. But, you know, it was just a classic, you know, and I was just chuckling because that's what we did every practice with our kids here indoors in our tiny, you know, field facility where everything is contact, you know, you know, that's what we do. And so the kids get so used to being beaten up, you know, and, you know, Jeff and I shared a sideline and, and, you know, and watched every aspect of girls high school soccer, the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, and, you know, got into some really interesting discussions, you know, which was where I really got to know and appreciate Jeff as a person. You know, sure. So I just wanted to throw that in. Sure. Um, well, so Jeff, oftentimes on on the this this podcast in in various forms through the different episode themes that we have, we talk a lot about culture and we talk a lot about the soccer culture here in the United States. Philippe, uh, we're lucky to have Philippe, um, who grew up obviously in Brazil, that talks about the soccer culture in Brazil, and we talk about how 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 we are as a club trying to infuse some of that street soccer creative atmosphere and environment, but deliver it to American, uh, to, to American kids in a way that actually works within American culture, right? Like we talk all the time <coughs> about actually, um, sometimes raising specifically this frustration that you'll sometimes hear, um, you know, coaches in general or, or people that are fans of the game. We just need kids to play more street soccer. That's what we need. We just need more street soccer. And while I entirely agree, agree that street soccer provides our kids with so much 
fantastic benefit in terms of, of creativity and, and just being willing to try things and not being worried about the score, right? And it's just a matter of playing. The problem we have in the United States culture is there are, there are not very many places in the United States where mom and dad are going to go drop their kids off in downtown Kansas City and say, I'll pick you up at 8.30, go find a game to hop into. And so we've tried to manufacture a little bit of that here. Um, to that end, um, as someone who uh, runs, uh, you know, obviously a great background in the game playing and then, and then coaching, but now runs the largest coaches um, organization worldwide in the United States, um, uh, what do you, what, from your perspective, what are things that um, areas of opportunity for us as a soccer culture in the United States to improve and to grow? Wow. That's, that's a, a Unbelievable question here. You've got 30 seconds. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think it really uh, surrounds the coach. Um, I, I'm a strong believer that kids don't quit the game because of the game. I think they quit the game because of people. And I think that coaches really need to have their open mind for players to explore. Uh, on their on their own, create those type of environments where it's not always rigid, uh, it's not always structured. Think about a, a, a kid's day. They get up in the morning. They don't want to get up in the morning. They get up entirely too early. They spend the day in the classroom. There's less movement. There's less. Uh, they're they're all sitting around. They're 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 listening to a teacher. They're doing tasks. They're right. There's not a lot of. Uh, a freedom for a kid in in school and then they go to a soccer practice that has to be regimented and quiet and and do this and do that and task orientated and then they go home and uh, have to do homework and I, I think we need to create more environments where the kids are playing and not, not only playing our sport but also playing other sports I think there can be uh, multi-disciplines uh, uh, learn from other sports and I think coaches need to uh, to be open to that uh, think about just even footwork from the standpoint of if you were to have kids play basketball or uh, or, or even American football or any other sport that's out there and some of the disciplines that they can they can learn from other coaching styles from other uh, sports as well. So I, I think the freedom for kids to play multiple sports and just to play the game itself um, it, it is important. Um, but I also think that coaches really kind of need to, to learn from each other um, a, as well. And, and yes, there's general philosophies that clubs have, that, that coaches have, um, but I'm, I, I'm also a firm believer in uh, equal playing time as well, yeah. And I, and I know that that's uh, that, that's something that the the Casey Legends does, um, and I, and I think that that's an important philosophy that all the kids get to play uh, the sport. My daughter was uh, not the most talented player on the on the field, but she loved the game more than anyone. And um, we've had coaches that have felt that uh, in her time that equal playing time was, was important. Um, she actually thrived in that environment. Um, and, and so uh, now my daughter's going on and she's coaching D1 soccer, right? And, uh, and she's spreading the love of the game for with young kids that she's coaching. She's in Charlotte right now. Um, she's coaching a U10 team, but she's also coaching Division I 
women's soccer. And uh, I, 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 she absolutely has a career in this sport. Yep. And um, so I, I think those environments where kids uh, can grow and play and explore and absolutely create the passion for the game is is what I think coaches really need to do. And I, I, I got something to say here. Yeah. Because, you know, Jeff hit on the four key words, love of the game. You know, and if you're going to fall in love with this game, you got to play. The number one thing that can destroy your love for the game is being sat on the bench mm-hmm. when all you want is a fair amount of playing time on the field, you know, in order to, you know, you know build and exhibit your love of the game. You know, and, you know, this is the, you know, it's criminal, honestly, it really is. You know, you're not allowed to say to your kid in our educational system, you can't come into my math class. You'll be fired as a teacher if you said that. And yet we allow in youth coaching, the coach is allowed to say, you've got to sit the bench. You can't come into my game. You know, and so you don't get the learning opportunity that the other kids are getting. And it's for egotistical reasons. It's because they want to win. The coach is a man child or a woman child. They want to win. And so they hurt kids' development. They hurt kids' motivation in order to win the game. And that's criminal. That's child abuse. I'm sorry. Very strong words. But it is. It's abusive of children at a very sensitive phase of development. And a lot of those kids with great potential leave the game because of one ugly coach that wouldn't put them in the game and wasn't being fair and equitable and was treating them as though they didn't count. They were a non-person on the team who was expected to support their team positively from the bench whilst getting absolutely slapped around the head from a psychological perspective. I mean, to that to that end, I was on Facebook this weekend, um, Sunday night, doing my usual Sunday night scroll. <laughs> and um, uh, a friend of mine who left Kansas City, relocated to a, to a, a different area, um, has young kids. He has a daughter who I'd estimate to be eight, nine. And so he found a club for her to play for. Um, and he was posting about how proud he was of his daughter and her soccer team and the success they'd had this past weekend in some Halloween-themed tournament um, uh, in their town. Um, and he, he mentioned specifically several lessons were learned this weekend by my daughter, life lessons, and I'm really proud of him. And one of the life lessons that he cited was that playing time isn't always equal. Um, and I, I, I genuinely chuckled and thought, man, like what, what a perverse society and culture we have. Uh, I didn't plan on talking about playing time today, but what a perverse uh, culture and society we have when you know a well-meaning parent refers to their own child um, and their soccer experience and is happy that their soccer that their child um, is getting to learn as an eight-year-old that um, maybe they aren't as good or don't deserve as much time on the field um, as as some of her peers Um, and and I think that I don't think it's just a coaching issue I think it's a parent issue as well that we it's a societal issue that we prioritize statistical winning um, over um, um, child development um, uh, across the board. Really well-meaning, you know, good people um, um, participate in, perpetuate that abuse. And I think abuse is, is an appropriate word there. Um, can, can, I, can I jump in here? Sure. Because, um, there's, a, there's a well-known English um, lecturer, uh, you know, writer, author. He has the number one TED Talk ever called Sir Ken Robinson. Rest in peace. You know, he's, uh, he's passed away. I didn't away. realize he passed away. Yeah, he passed away. Um, and, and Sir Ken um, 
loves to tell the story, and it's a great story of a mother that that um, her daughter was having uh, issues at school, and um, she took the daughter to you know a, a child psychologist, and the child psychologist you know listened to the background of the story and and and, and said, uh, "Ma'am, can you step outside the room with me and put some music on?" You know, when he stepped outside of the room. And he had a two-way mirror, and they, they watched the daughter, you know, sit for a minute and listen to the music. And then she got up and she started dancing, you know. And she was having all sorts of problems, you know, during, during school, you know. And, and so they watched and they watched, and, uh, you know, and he said, here's your problem. Your daughter sits all day long in school, and she's a dancer, you know, and and uh, and so she became a dancer, and she became. Um, uh, um, the, she was I can't remember her name, but she was the lady that that created Cats. You know the, you know the incredible you know uh, you know dance opera. You know uh, the the you know that was world famous, and um, and this changed her whole life because um, she she was a kinetic learner. You know, so she needed to move, you know, and she was bored in school and, and they got her into dance and she never looked back. And, you know, th this is what we're failing to do for our soccer players. We sit them on benches. We don't let them get up. We don't let them play. We don't let them grow, develop, make mistakes, get up, try again. You know, and we certainly as a, a, a coaching community aren't doing enough to make them creative when they've got the ball. You know, and so we're not letting them be dancers. You know, we want them to follow rote and, and you know, just pass in pattern plays, you know, and we want them to be little robots when we get them on the field. They're not. They're artists, you know, and we're only going to fulfill their potential if we treat them like artists and we let them play and we encourage them to splash paint on the canvas and go for it and learn and grow and, and you know, and, and really experiment without half an eye on the score. The score doesn't matter. It's the individuals that we're coaching that matter and the creativity that we can bring to their life and the change that we can expose them to that is going to make them better human beings in the long run. Make sense? For sure, for sure. You are definitely preaching to the choir. Jeff, I'm going to put you on the spot, though. Can I, can I say one thing? Yes. Um, so I think Jeff mentioned something that I think is very important and is the fact that the kids nowadays, they... They go to school from, what, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m.? And then right after that, they go to soccer practice. And after that, they got to do homework. It's a full-time job, right? Uh, Brazil is different. You go to school just for five hours, just from 7 to 12. You have the whole afternoon free. Or you that go to school in the afternoon. about you. Yeah? yeah? You have more time to play soccer, right? <laughs> you have more time to have fun. You have more time to experience. And But you're as dumb as a rock. Yeah. <laughs> That's why that's why you need me to take care of your money. So <laughs> I think you're dumber to put me in charge. <laughs> but yeah, come to think of it, you're fired. <laughs> hey Jeff, are you hiring? <laughs> but anyway, uh, so it, it here this, the the kids do too much, and they have you know a lot of kids do you know, music, and they do all these other activities, and then it, it burns the kid out. And people say soccer burns the kid out. Oh, no, that's not. let's take one practice off during the winter. Let's not burn them out. It's not soccer that is burning out. Kids do way too much already, and it's way too much, way too structured, right? Uh, I, I brought a full team of players, high-level players for my own age group, 
And the parents were laughing at the last day of tryouts. I had the team put, in, put together already. I showed up with soccer stuff ready to play. And I just put the, split the kids into three teams. You know, Rena, it was uh, um, at the school, Shawnee Mission, that we, we, we ran the tryouts. We had a small outdoor field, 7v7, three teams, and I played with them and just having fun. Everybody, you know, doing moves and having fun, laughing. When somebody met somebody, they were laughing, having fun. And those two teams were rivals right before that, and the kids were having fun. And the parents were, like, looking around and asking the current parents, like, are the kids allowed to have fun? And, you know, and I think that's the thing. When the kids, year after year after year, they go to practice, and it's structured, 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 lines, pattern plays, and all that. And it loses the element of fun. Uh, many, in, and you see that in the professional game too. Brazilians are known for that. They go through hell in their childhood to make it through the academy system, go through a lot of pain. There are a lot of big, big social uh, problems uh, that happen in that environment in Brazil. Very, very bad. And they come out of poverty once they, they go to Europe or even when they're still in Brazil making a load, a load, load of money out of nowhere, they're done. They're done uh, taking care of their body. They're done focusing on the game. Their passion, their drive for the game, it's done. They just they go there, they keep playing, they collect the paycheck, but it's done. And we're doing that here with kids. They're not going to be, most likely they're not going to be pro. How many soccer players that we coach are going to become professional maybe less than one percent most likely that so we we that's not that hasn't that can't be the focus the focus needs to be let's get the kids passionate about the game let's make them love the game so like jeff's daughter did she went in and she impacted the game at a much higher degree as a coach if not sure how long she has been coaching the college program but every year the turnover how many kids she has impacted that moved on and impacted more kids so we we can push kids away from the game so we need to provide an environment that they're looking forward to go to they don't want another school they and, want and something that they can alleviate what they're having to go through in school and all that so yeah. ken ken robinson makes this point he says that, you know the kid that's bored in school is often the you know the one of the highest intelligence you know, and, you know, and, and, but what we do is we take that kid because he's bored and, you know, or she's bored and they're not getting good grades, you know, and we treat them as though there's something wrong. And so they, they get, you know, a medical definition. They get, you know, their, their ADD, attention deficit disorder. And then we drug them up. We give them riddling. And all they want to do is play. All they want to do is, is, is love what they're doing. And, you know, if you can find something that trips their switch, then, you know, they're just a different type of learner. You know, they don't learn in rote terms. You know, they, they don't do, do the ABCD thing. You know, they're bored with that very quickly because they're, they're hyper-intelligent. They're not hyperactive and they don't have a disorder. They're just very bright kids who are quickly bored. You know, but because we teach to the middle, we teach to the average, they're diagnosed as having ADD and they're drugged up. You know, and it doesn't make any sense. The educational system, as Ken Robinson um, loves to point out, is badly damaged 
because it doesn't teach to the heart. It doesn't teach to the passion, and it doesn't recognize all the various ways that humanity learns. You know, you may have an artist there. You may have, you know, a, a Vincent van Gogh in your midst, but you don't recognize it because you're teaching them a rote way of learning a subject, you know, and everybody's different. And it's only now that people are coming around to the fact that, you know, they may have a genius on their hands. They're just failing to recognize that potential for genius. It's really, to be fair, it's really hard to recognize a Vince Van Gogh if, you're, if you've got one in your midst because most kids that I coach these days have two ears. And so it's difficult to like... <laughs> Um, so, uh, Jeff, I'm going to. For put, those of you that don't understand that joke, Vincent Van Gogh cut one of his ears off. I, you I know, most people know. I mean, even if they didn't knowledge. know, they would have kind of picked up by the context. But thanks, but Andy, thanks, thanks for explaining. Yeah. Um, that Jeff, was actually, that was actually for you know for people with Philippe's level of IQ. <laughs> Only five <laughs> hours of Doesn't school. Suarez. How many <laughs> languages do you speak? Yeah. Suarez. I he speak knows two. Vincent I speak Van Gogh. English and American. <laughs> English and American. <laughs> Um, all right, Jeff, I've been chopping at the bit. all English and American. That was your best joke <laughs> of the season. Of the season. <laughs> I can't wait for next season. Joke. I live a sad It's life. only downhill from here. Um, <laughs> Jeff, I've been chopping at the bit to put you on the spot as a follow-up to my question related to what, what is a, 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 an area of opportunity for us as a U.S. soccer culture from a development, coaching development perspective. Um, and, and my takeaway from your answer was more play. Like, like from, and, and that matches up with a lot of what you were saying pre-recording um, this morning about um, uh, uh, United Soccer Coaches really focusing on re reality-based sessions, reality-based education. Um, um, and one thing that was mentioned that Andy took from, from, from your answer was love of the game, right? And, 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 and how, how important that is um, if, 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 if we're going to be successful in, in continuing to grow this game and the, and, and the game can have the impact that we believe the game can have the impact on society and kids, um, specifically um, uh, growing that game. And, and I think I'm going to take a moment here before I ask this question and, and measure that for us. Um, I think there are two giant obvious buckets that 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 perpetuate uh, the growth of the love of the game right one is playing um, and two is the the watching or or experiencing soccer from a from a, a non-playing perspective in the United States now with the MLS growing as it's grown with um, with the English Premier League and, and and leagues all over the world now being pumped into our televisions or onto our our phones so we can see them my kids that I coach and my own kids that that I that I parent, they have access to the game in a, in, in a way that, that that we never had as, as kids here in the United States. And so, from a cultural perspective, I've seen us make great strides in that direction in terms of having an environment or a culture in the United States that perpetuates and encourages the love of the game, if you will. But coming back to more play, I think that's the other half, right? You can, you can play or you can um, uh, view and experience. Coming back to more play, I'm curious from your perspective, Jeff, how are we doing? Are, from, from, from your vantage point, and maybe, maybe you don't know, I, I, but if you compare it to 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 25 years ago, are we as a coaching community doing a better job of, of, of giving kids an opportunity to play more? Um, and it more play in, in, a, in, a, in a positive developmental perspective than we did 25 years ago? Or are we getting more regimented? Are we going the right way or the wrong way? Yeah. That's, a, <clears throat> that's a loaded question, and I'm going to say yes and no. Okay. 
I'm going to say yes because I think kids have more opportunities to play because there's more clubs, there's more programs, there's more opportunities for girls, right, from, from top to bottom, right, all the way from youth through professional. There's more opportunities for girls and women at, at the college level and, and <clears throat> all of that. There's also more opportunities to play because coaches are asking them to train three, four times a week. We're having uh, three to five games a weekend, all of that. So there's more opportunities to play from that standpoint. But I don't think that there's more opportunities for free play, right? Um, and so I, I think that we are doing a better job from that standpoint, giving more opportunities to play because in a structured way. Now, I think, yes, we are, we're, we're, we're more regimented. And I, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword there where they're getting more opportunities to play, but it's more um, playing from the standpoint of you have to be here at this time and you have to play at eight o'clock in the morning or 9.30 at night or those type of things. And look, it's, it's difficult because soccer's become such a big business. And uh, I, I'd love for kids to be able just to go out in, and I'm thinking about when I was a young guy, um, I played all kinds of different sports from the standpoint of, I would go in my backyard and we'd play football or we'd play hockey or we'd play soccer or we'd play wiffle ball or we'd do all these different sports and I got to truly find out where I wanted to play. I think those opportunities are less for free play because kids are so structured in doing all of the other things that parents are throwing their kids into. And what coaches are trying to do is, is really um, feeling like more training and more regiment is developing kids. And I, I, I think there's a delicate balance there. And you had said before, and I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but correct me if I'm wrong, but you had said pre-recording that um, a, a, a trap that coaching education can fall into is being too academic in nature um, when comparing it to the focus that, that you try to have and the organization tries to have in terms of, yes, academic-ish, but it's more reality-based. Correct. So I call it recipe-based coaching versus reality-based coaching. Look, if, if I wanted to put a training session together for a U-12 team and I wanted to do possession, I could Google U-12 possession soccer and there could be hundreds of act, uh, uh, training plans, right? And all I got to do is print that off and go out and regurgitate what's happening here. But am I really developing kids from the standpoint if they're struggling in, let's say, a six versus six possession activity, and they can't possess the ball more than two or three passes without turning the ball over. How, as a coach, do I change that environment that those kids are struggling in? Or maybe one team is, is getting 12 passes in a row and the other team's only getting two or three. How do I change that environment? And I, I don't necessarily know if I'm just going and, and printing off a recipe training plan. But I, I, I think that we're doing a good job at United Soccer Coaches of, of helping coaches understand how to change the reality of 
what a training session really is. How many times do you hear it at the young age where, uh, well, I can't control these kids. Well, you're trying to put 15 kids in a line and, and <laughs> you know, do a shooting drill. Well, that's what the internet told me. That's what the recipe told me. And you see it all the time. You go out on a training field, or you go out on a training field at night, or a complex, or pregame warmups, or whatever. It, it's it's the same. It's the same regiment, and kids then get into this mold where they're just doing either the same thing all the time. They're not using their brains. They're not being the coaches aren't being creative. So. Uh, how do they expect the kids to be creative if the coaches aren't being creative? See, you know, it, what happened yesterday? Huge in the soccer world. Messi won the Ballon d'Or. Philippe didn't tweet me at three in the morning, so <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you know, the, the Ballon d'Or awards, you know, and oh, so, gotcha. you know, two very skillful players, you know, Bonmati for Spain and, and Messi for Argentina. Uh, and, you know, who did Messi give credit to, you know, when he received the award? Who, you know? God. United Soccer Coaches. <laughs> I didn't, yeah, I didn't, no I didn't watch it. <coughs> you don't yeah. have to watch it. Inter-Miami. Tata. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it's obvious. You know, I, who did he give? Who did he give ultimate credit his to? His parents. For his, Diego Maradona. Uh, okay. He's an Argentinian. You know. He, you know. He 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 gave thanks for Diego because he grew up with all of. It's like you, Philippe. You, you inundate me with highlights, and I love it. Don't get me wrong. Don't ever stop. But you in the, your passion for the creativity, for the beautiful part of the game, is amazing. Well, that's what Leo Messi grew up immersed in. You know, and and so. You know, you know, Leo Messi wasn't even born when Diego Maradona won the World Cup in 1986. You know, so, you know, he, he got this through the society, through the ethos, much in the same way as you got Pelé. Garincha, yeah. And Garincha through the ethos, you know. And, you know, and so I can relate to this personally because I got Bobby Charlton. You know, th you know, in, in live during my life, you know, and he won the Ballon d'Or after England won the World Cup in 1966 and was the most creative English player of that era, which compared to Brazil, honestly, isn't saying a lot, <laughs> you know, but but, you know, here's what Bobby Charlton said in a quote. The World Cup wasn't won in 1966 on the playing fields of England. It was won on the streets. And that speaks to exactly what you were just saying, Jeff. You know, it's all about creativity. And the streets of Ashington, they played across these tiny streets in a coal mining town where the goals were on the 12-foot the brick walls on one side and the 12-foot brick walls on the other side. And the street was 200 yards long, you know, and they went across the streets between the delivery coal holes. You know, that, those were the goals, you know, and they played with a tennis ball. You know, and Bobby Charlton learned to hit a tennis ball perfectly, so hitting a big fat soccer ball was easy, you know, from 30 yards relative to scoring with a tennis ball in the streets of Ashington, England. You know, and that's the free play that the kids do not have anymore. Speaking to your point, Jeff, they're regimented, you know, into, into an adult's idea of some type of soccer practice that usually involves a line drill and, and a severe restriction of touches on the ball. Right? 
Yeah, and I'm, thank you, Andy, for bringing up Ashington again. Another plug, I know we get listeners that come to our podcast after we started recording a few years ago. Go back and listen to, I think it was episode two, yeah. the, the episode specifically on Ashington, England. It is by far, far and away the best content of any episode that we've done. I wouldn't say that necessarily our technical skill on recording podcasts at the time was nearly as good as it is now, which is just superb, right? <laughs> but but um, the content specific. Is, uh, is 10 out of 10. Jeff, okay, so um, as we start marching toward a wrap-up here, um, I, I, I want to I spend a moment um, understanding and, and making sure our listeners are aware of opportunities they have within United Soccer Coaches. Um, uh, so we mentioned before the big January event that, that Philippe uh, jaw hit the floor the first time he walked, walked, walked into. Um, for the first time ever, um, I think, uh, uh, thanks to COVID, because it was supposed to be there a few years ago, for the first time ever, you've You've moved it to a warm weather location. It's in Anaheim, California, correct? Well, we were in in L.A. in 17. Okay, okay. But uh, this is the first time in a long time. Okay. That was the first time since 94 that we were on the West Coast, yes. Yeah. But now we're going to be in Anaheim for the first time ever, so... Yes. Is it, for those that have are just maybe hearing about it now, but it's a f- we're a few months out. There's still plenty of time to register and to, to book to, to book a trip out. Um, what what uh, exciting pieces might they be in in for? So the convention as a whole, it's as I said, it's the largest gathering of soccer coaches in the world. So there's about 225 education sessions, and we have a mixture of classroom sessions, which are panels, straight up lectures. Uh, there's round tables, there's one-on-one sessions with coaches, then we actually build two almost full-size soccer pitches, uh, little small stadiums where we have live demonstrations. And then we have a futsal floor as, as well. So all that makes up 225 education sessions over five days. Multiple diplomas that you can receive, so furthering education. Then we have uh, an exhibit hall with almost 200 companies that uh, span about 200,000 square feet of exhibit hall and where coaches can go in and see the latest and greatest of technology, um, uniform suppliers, uh, you know, apparel, uh, everything around the fundraising, all of these companies that are here to get to uh, get to, uh, to spread the word on soccer um, and coaching. Then we have about 30 meal and social functions to help celebrate coaches' achievements and players' achievements in that. So it's all in January, uh, unitedsoccercoaches.org. Uh, we're a nonprofit uh, coaching organization, uh, membership organization, and to be a member, uh, you get a million-dollar liability insurance, you get to be a part of the coaching communities that I've talked about with nine different coaching communities. Um, the newest one being a, a, a military veterans group, um, which is which is pretty awesome. And uh, those coaches communities are really who you are as a coach, but also who you coach to give opportunities and give resources uh, to coaches uh, to better understand their players and to 
build that community uh, of uh, networking for for each coach. So. And there's really nobody better to talk talk to, to to talk about the value of being a member of United Soccer Coaches than Andy, having been a member consistently since what was it 1724 was was the first year you. Uh, I, no, they started I, in 1941. So yeah. I think that was that was. I think his membership number is in the top ten. His top ten, it's yeah, like yeah. zero 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 one zero. He's our number 10. <laughs> I'd just like to announce to our uh, listenership that this is my last episode of being abused <laughs> by so-called friends. Over <laughs> people you know, people you know. <laughs> <laughs> Even that's an exaggeration. <laughs> people I don't choose to know any longer. <laughs> no, you know, United Soccer Coaches, you know, has, has given me so many insights over the years. Uh, and you know, I, I can only ever be eternally grateful for the knowledge that, um, that that I continue to get from all of the people that have been educated by United Soccer Coaches. You know, it, it is, uh, you know, and I took a Welsh FA intermediate badge, a prelim and an intermediate badge, while I was in phys ed school, and uh, you know, and I experienced a lot of the um, the the English FA attitude, and and it's very similar actually. The English FA would be the equivalent of the United States Soccer Federation in terms of being formal, you know, and, you know, it's definitely a closed shop, you know, and, and back in my day, you know, you virtually had to be a professional player in order to get a license, you know, which was, you know, just a slap in the face to everybody that came through, um, you know, the academic phys ed environment that loved the game of soccer. And that's changed a lot over the years, um, but there's still an elitism attached to the FA you know, the English FA as, as opposed to the FA of Wales, who are very much more approachable, you know, very much more hands-on, you know, and that's who I got my licenses from, uh, ex, ex, you know, current teachers who were ex-students at the college I went to were the ones that ran the licensing, and it was a whole different warm welcoming. I'm still friends with one of the guys that, that ran me through that course, Gwyn Williams, who came over here to work for British Soccer Camps, which was a, a company I started, and then ended, over, uh, ended up emigrating to the USA as a result of coming over and working on British Soccer Camps. So he was my teacher, and then as a result of the company that I built, he ended up moving to the United States and remarrying and setting up his whole life over here, resetting up his whole life over here. But he was a wonderful role model to me. And, um, and, it, and he was, interestingly enough, and I'm not sure he would remember this, but he picked on me because I was the starting British College's left fullback at the time. And, you know, he said, I want to know who the best defender is on this course. And there was like 40 of us. And the guy said, you know, Andy. And he said, he said, I'm about to rip you a new one. And I looked at him. I said, no, you're not. You know, and, you know, he did a move on me that literally left me Bambi on ice. You know, and, you know, it was a combination of hiding the ball, you know, and it was a Cruyff turn, but it was like a push into me, uh, a play it away. You know, I call it the sucker Cruyff these days when I teach it, you know, and it absolutely destroyed me because I stepped in, you know, after he pushed me away, like, you know, angry that he'd pushed me away on the shield, you know, and so I was fully committed to whacking him and bringing him down, you know, and, you know, he did a Cruyff turn and he left me for dead in a, in a 10 yard grid. He left me for dead. You know, it wasn't like he had a lot of time and space, you know, and, you know, the, the 40 guys that were all friends of mine that were on the course, 
because yeah, I organized the course, you know, and got these guys involved. You know, these guys just came unglued laughing at me. You know, <laughs> I was totally humiliated by Gwyn. You know, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, he doesn't even remember it, funny enough, because he probably did it so many times to, you know, to people on these courses. Um, but I'll never forget it because I felt like an inch tall when he, when he got done with me. You know, but it taught me the value of, of a deceptive move, you know, under pressure, you know, uh, especially in front of an audience. You know, it was it was sure. it was really interesting. Um, you know, so um, you know, Jeff, um, words of advice for people. You know, if you can say to somebody, you you need to think of these three things. You know, you know, you've got this experience. You've got this. You know, this. You know, first in the world opportunity. You know, to to run the the most important coaching organization in the world. You know, what three things would you say to them they need to do as coaches in order to further the game? I know I'm putting you on the spot, but... Uh, well, first of all, become a member. <laughs> <laughs> That's a right? given, right? That's right. a given. No, yeah. it, it's, it is. Um, continue to be a lifelong learner, right, uh, uh, around um, your craft as far as being a coach. Um, and that includes talking the game, that includes learning the game, that includes watching the, the game, that includes um, even watching a lot of these documentaries that are happening now around, around the game and some of the, some of the best uh, managers of the game and how they lead people. Um, so I, I, I think that's it. Uh, lifelong learner. And uh, remember that the game is supposed to be fun. And uh, I, I think it's really about um, making sure that these players are having fun and having fun means playing the game. So I, I think those are, are some good words of advice uh, and, and, and it's about the players. And, and you know, I, I think that that's fantastic advice. And, and the, the thing that really hit home to me was lifelong learners. Because I think, you know, there's a lot of people out there, coaches, uh, you know, are terrible at doing this. They think they know enough mm -hmm. and y y they don't know what they don't know because they're not lifelong learners. You know, and, you know, we need to walk the walk, though, right? You know, and, and uh, I, I'm not sure if you, you both know this, I, you know, but Jeff just wrote a, a recommendation letter for me because I'm going to take the, um, the, the highly touted master's degree course that's being offered um, you know, at Ohio University in conjunction with, with United Soccer Coaches. You know, and I'm going to take that course. I've been watching it for a number of years, you know, and I love what I've seen in terms of the uh, promotion of the course. And I'm excited to go up there and learn something new, you know, because, you know, ostensibly from everything I've been reading, this takes studying the game to a whole new level. And I want to be part of that. I want to continue to learn so that hopefully I can pass down this knowledge through, you know, the, the, the legend system of soccer clubs around the world, you know, and, and help other people to expand their knowledge, if that makes sense. I'd like to make one more point. I think you're seeing this at the college level, um, a little bit of the dysfunction of, of the portal right, the transfer portal. These kids are committing way too early to colleges. Then the backup plan is, well, if I don't like the situation, I'm just going to get in the transfer portal, right? And you know what? 
the kids aren't going to transfer if that player coach relationship is is top notch. Bingo. And everyone to be a college coach, you don't have to have any credential. You don't have to have any education. You have to have a master's degree. I coached college for 16 years, 22 seasons, and I had an elementary education curriculum development master's degree. Nothing to do with coaching the game. Nothing to do with player-coach relationships and developing leaders and all of the things that surround uh, developing a, 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 a college player. Now, I knew the game, I had my philosophy, I continued to understand how to train the kids and that type of thing. But I, I United Soccer Coach, we've created a uh, coach credential now. And we're gonna make this available to all coaches of all sports. It's a 60 hour course and it's really around team culture, self-leadership, and it's, it's really about that player-coach relationship. We're training coaches on uh, leadership skills, how to develop that culture, how to develop leadership, how to recognize mental health issues, how to help with suicide prevention, how to help with all of the things that college soccer players or, or college athletes, excuse me, are going through. And so we're in major discussions right now with the NCAA uh, on, on making this uh, a, a, a credential that all college coaches can can take and, and go. That's brilliant. Go through. That's absolutely brilliant. You, you know, it's it's innovation. You know, that's needed in the worst possible way in our sport. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Well, and I honestly, I think if you can take it further, I think coaches in the highest level of the game, the professional coaches, they are also not the most knowledgeable ones, but they are the ones that can relate with the players and get the best locker room and get the best performance out of them. So even when you think, even if that coach only thinking about winning, it's also good to have that kind of relationship. But like you said, it's the most important thing for the development of the game and for the kids. And yeah, I mean, that's fantastic. Culture, that's important. Well, there's the, the, the old adage, right? You know, people don't know, people don't care what you know until they know you care, right? Like, and, 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 and everybody buys into it uh, at, at a surface level. But from a coaching perspective, from a leadership perspective, um, um, do all of our actions and activities and, and sessions and uh, pregame, postgame, uh, mid-game um, coaching points, do, all, do they all support that, 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 that culture of, of care first, right? Um, and, and most importantly, playing time. I think if 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 you're like oh I really care about the kids and you're sitting kids on the bench then I think you don't care your your actions are right. divergent of of your words. It's all about your ego if yeah. you're sitting kids on the bench because yeah. it's destructive. It's terribly destructive. Sure. To most kids, you know, occasionally there's a kid that's tough-minded enough to to handle that and work through it and get something positive out of it, but they certainly don't develop their game. Sure. You know, the sure. positive they get is, you know, how to take a whip in and, and, and keep on moving forward, you know, which is not the way that youth development should be. Well, Andy, typically as we round out an episode, you've got a, a, a vignette or a perspective to uh, wrap us up. What do, you, what do you got in store for us today? Well, I, I, I still believe that our governing bodies um, could... Um, encourage more of the 
street soccer type environment. You know, and, and I, I wanted to read this. The, um, this is uh, an author that I love. You know, his, his book is about chaos. And um, he says, the greater the degree of interaction, diversity, and information, the greater the system's instability and flexibility. It is here at the edge of chaos that systems have their greatest potential for novelty and creativity. And this is something that I don't think we pay enough attention to, is, you know, even in the, the most egalitarian, the, you know, the most diverse of our soccer practices and, you know, the coach education sessions that I witness when I, when I go to these events, um, I don't see enough anarchy. I don't see enough, um, you know, novelty, creativity, instability, flexibility, and this goes back to the, the Ghanaians that I saw take apart, you know, the Manchester United youth team with, with Beckham and Scholes and the Neville brothers and, and Ryan Giggs, you know, the, the guy that played more games for Manchester United than any other player, you know, and, and the Ghanaians, when those kids were um, English under-19 FA Youth Club champions, the Ghanaians had just finished runners-up in the World Cup in 1993, and... They, in front of me, and, and everybody that was watching, put on an absolute clinic. They thrashed the Golden Boys, absolutely thrashed them with an inch of their life because all they'd ever done, these kids from Ghana, is play in the streets, you know, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a, just a go-for-it, anarchistic street mode. And Ghana either, you know, won twice you know, came second twice and came third once in the whole decades of the 1990s because they had coaches that were intelligent enough who ran the program the whole time, you know, in their system to pull together those players that had been playing in that anarchistic, crazy methodology, you know, onto one team and continue the practices at a national team level, you know, that I witnessed where they threw two whole squads. There was like 50 young players in one penalty area playing end-to-end, all playing two-on-two at the same time. You know, and I've never, it's probably never ever happened at any professional club, you know, since I witnessed the Ghanaian national team that won all these World Cups under 17. A lot of people don't know this, but under 17 happens every two years, the World Cups. You know, so they were able to win five, two, come runners up twice and get a third place in the decade of the 1990s. Look it up on Wikipedia, you know, and I got to see them at the start of that run and those coaches shared that with me and I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to understand what they were saying when I said, what do you do in practice to get them to play this way? And they said, we do this. And I said, no, no, you're not understanding me. Talk about a dumb Englishman. You know, they said, you know, they said, you're not, you know, I said, you're not understanding me. You know, what drills do you set up? Drills? Pattern plays, they didn't know the, the meaning of a pattern play. They just got into this crazy, crowded situation and found a solution to the bats in a cave scenario. So when they were under pressure in a game, in and around the penalty area, it was like being on holiday and literally, you know, sunbathing on the beach. It was that easy compared to everything they did in practices and everything they'd been exposed to playing street soccer growing up. You know, and, and that's what we're missing here. We need to get back to that, but we need to get back to that in the most optimal manner, which means we need to organize the environment, you know, the coaching philosophy, the culture, so that it emphasizes what we're trying to do, which is develop players that can do amazing things with the ball, because that's what we're not doing as a soccer society right now. Does that make sense? Yep.
Yep. Is that what you got to say? Preaching to the choir. <laughs> what do you well, think, Jeff? 100%. Well spoken. Well, um, another great episode. Jeff, thank you so much for waking up a little early on a Tuesday morning to come spend some time with us. It's been, I think, a few years since you and I have uh, got to hang out, but it's been enjoyable for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, Jeff. Thanks for coming. Much appreciate, appreciate it. it. All right, next time. See you guys. See you.